God, all of these things we ask you because of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Michael, could you run out and grab me a, a bottle of water? kind of overdid it singing this morning and losing my voice. Um, good reason to lose the voice. A few weeks ago, we uh, re- referenced an article from the New York Times about the, uh, the great de-churching. And uh, a series of articles that have been done about how church is becoming less and less relevant in people's lives in our increasingly secular world. Well, Jessica Gross, the, uh, the author of that series of articles, she's not a Christian, she's not religious in any way. She had an article on uh, July 26th that kind of grabbed my attention. The article title was The Church of Group Fitness. And she's reflecting on what is happening in our culture. What are some of the things that are lost societally and culturally when people simply stop going to church? Just from a secular standpoint, from sort of an outsider's standpoint, And one of the things she noted that is lost when people no longer go to church is the sense of community and the sense of fellowship and the sense of belonging to something that's sort of bigger than yourself. She opens this most recent article this way. When Sydney Schur's husband was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago, right in the middle of COVID, her local hiking group in Colorado showed up for her right away. Just a few days after word of his illness got out, someone in the group set up a meal train for the days her husband was in treatment, and fellow hikers offered to drive them on their long trips to the hospital. Sure, who is 70, described herself as a recovering PK, preacher's kid, was raised Episcopalian and said she'll never go back to the institutional church. But her hiking group, which is locally run, quote, feels like a church, close quote, she said, because the people in it, quote, take care of each other. The article goes on to describe how that vacuum that has been filled in people's lives when they have gotten away from church, gotten away from gatherings and communities and relationships, have been filled by something. They've been filled by something. God made us to be people who need relationship. He made us as social beings. If we're not going to get it in church, we're going to try and find it and generate it somewhere else. And somewhere where that is found is in group fitness. Some people find that community, she notes, in, in fan communities. They follow their sports. And you ever wonder why, like, why is Alabama football basically a religion? Because it is a religion, right? God made us to, to want to fit in somewhere, and when we're not finding that in the, in the church and with other believers, we're going to find that with people who unite on something less transcendent and less meaningful. She noted that many people replace their weekend worship with soul cycle, CrossFit, or Orange Theory, and finding friends and even some spiritual solace in these activities. One person noted who had left church and joined CrossFit as its replacement says, The one thing I, f- I feel out of CrossFit is it's kind of goofy, but it's unconditional love. In fact, she goes on to say, There's a lot of evangelizing for CrossFit that can parallel the outreach or recruitment aspect of religious worship. And it goes on to show how people have used these different avenues to find community. Now, I'm all in favor of you finding community in in clubs and in organizations. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But there's no replacement for the church of Jesus Christ. And even Jessica Gross recognizes this, noting one part of church going that's tougher to satisfy with group fitness is the multi-generational inclusiveness of those spaces. You're not going to bring a little kid to a CrossFit box. Um, And I would add this, what happens if you become bedridden 
you no longer can go to CrossFit? What, what happens if you are paralyzed? What happens when you are no longer to engage in those activities? The, the ability to unite people is very, very narrow based on your age and your fitness level, or if you're like me, if you hate working out, you miss out on all of those things. Now, I read that article to say this. What we're going to talk about today, gospel-centered fellowship, is something that our world is desperately craving. It's something that people in our world, saved and lost alike, religious and non-religious alike, recognize is desperately needed. There's a lot of talk today about political polarization, about fragmentation, about loneliness, particularly among men. The vast majority of men today do not have any close friends, become more and more isolated and go down darker and darker places online to try to find that place to belong. Study after study shows that we need community as human beings. And I would suggest to you, and I would assert, that the Church of Jesus Christ gives us that community in a way that no other institution on planet Earth can. The world desperately needs this. The world passionately wants this, but is hopelessly seeking for it in all the wrong places. All the wrong places. So we've now come to the end of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. We have seen how Bible-saturated teaching has sort of created and grown the church. He preaches, people respond in repentance of faith, and they're now brought into fellowship with the body of Christ. And so what we want to talk about today is fellowship. What is fellowship? What is it that we as a church do? What is it we as a church offer that you're not going to find in your CrossFit gym, that you're not going to find in your hiking club, that you're not going to find in your local political committee? What is it that we find here? Fellowship is one of those Christian words that we throw around a whole bunch. And John and I were talking about this beforehand, that even the broader, uh, the broader culture uses this word fellowship. But what does it mean in its biblical sense? It's one of those words through overuse has be, become evacuated of its meaning and become sort of a vessel for anything that you want it to be. For some people, it means spending time together. That's fellowship. And to a degree, that's one of the things you would do. It might mean having conversation. Or if you're a Baptist, as I am, it means that there's fried chicken involved. Basically, fellowship as a Baptist, here's the formula if you're a math person, is people plus food equals fellowship. Can I get an amen? All of those things are good things. And in fact, food pay, plays a portion in our text. But fellowship is more than that. The old preachers would say fellowship is fellows, a bunch of fellows who are in a ship, right? We're all in the same boat. We're all going to the same harbor, going in the same direction. And all of these things can be good things in and of themselves, but they're missing the heart of Christian fellowship, which is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the throbbing heart of it all, the gospel. That's what brings the church together. That's what brings multiple generations and multiple ethnicities together in the body of Christ. It's not because we all like doing burpees together or all like eating the same food or all like hiking on the same trails. What brings us together is we have been redeemed by the same Savior. So what are the characteristics of genuine fellowship? We're thinking about our core values as a church, and one of those core values is gospel-centered fellowship. And some of these values are things that we we say, you know, we have them as a church and we want to protect them. Some of them are more aspirational to say, this is what the Bible sets out as the ideal that we're always chasing after. So what do we want to look like as Cloverleaf Baptist Church? We want to be marked by gospel-centered fellowship, by genuine fellowship, and I can think of no better text to get an insight into it as the one that we just read. So Acts chapter 2, we're really going to be zeroing in now in verses 41 to 47. Now what we're getting here is right after Pentecost, Peter has preached, thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus. We now see the growing, the explosively growing church in Jerusalem, and it is marked by incredible community. 
is marked by an incredible witness. It gives us almost the ideal. Here's what a church ought to look like in any age. The first characteristic that's non-negotiable is this. Genuine fellowship, gospel-centered fellowship, is marked by gospel relationships. Relationships that have been created by the gospel. Look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word. Now his word, the message that Peter just preached, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that the Spirit of God has come as the end times gift from God. The promise of forgiveness, the promise that God himself is now dwelling in the midst of his people. Like those who received that in faith and repentance were baptized. And the same day were added unto them around 3,000 souls. The doorway into the fellowship of the church, into this partnership and this camaraderie and this community and this belonging is the gospel. The gospel is declared, we saw last week, and in verse 41 we see the gospel is received. Peter made it very clear that the people he was speaking to were sinners whose guilt had to be in some way taken care of. He was clear that Jesus' death on the cross was the solution and the answer to their sin. The demand that he laid out in verse 38 is repent, turn away from your sin, turn your back on it, and then be baptized, the, the sign and the expression of faith. Put your trust in Jesus. Now, the word here in verse 41, that those who received his word, sometimes we, hear, we talk about like, oh, you need to accept Jesus. We even get language in the Bible, as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. Good biblical word, but sometimes people take that to mean, well, just sort of agree to some things mentally. Okay, here's Jesus. Do you agree that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Yes. You're saved. It's a little more than that. I like the inclusion of the adverb, gladly. This is not a, okay, you twisted my arm, Peter. I guess I'll sort of go through the motions of joining the church. This is glad-hearted reception of Jesus. It's the glad-hearted reception that celebrates and embraces Christ for who he is. Verse 36, he made it clear. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Messiah. It's not just taking the parts of Jesus we want of, I like the forgiveness of sins part, but I don't really like the him moving in and taking over my life part. And no, it's receiving Jesus, not parts of Jesus, but the whole Christ. Prophet, priest, king, Lord. It's the kind of response that takes Jesus both as Savior and as Lord. It's not just a response that accepts Jesus without any moral change in the life. Verse 38, it had called for repentance. So what we're, we're getting different language to talk about the same thing. What does it mean to gladly receive the word? Well, it means to trust in Christ. It means to turn from sin. It means to gladly embrace him as he is. It is repentant faith. It is trusting and faith-filled repentance. It's glad reception. Now, here's my point. It's very simple. There's no Christian fellowship without the gospel. There's no Christian fellowship without each of us saying, I'm going to receive Jesus. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to be born again. There is no fellowship without the declaration and reception of the gospel. We might express similar religious sentiments. We might even enjoy common interests and build good friendships. But we can't, at the bottom of it, have true spiritual fellowship without Jesus Christ being at the absolute center of everything. So the the pressing question I want to put to each of you today is this. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ? Has there been a time in your life that you saw yourself as a hell-bound, wrath-deserving sinner 
and you saw the glory and the beauty of Jesus crucified in your place, your substitute on the cross, has there been a time that you have put your total trust and reliance in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus in your place? Or is there some little, some little corner of your heart where you're still trusting your own goodness? Repenting and believing means this. I stop trusting my own works. I stop downplaying my sin. I come to Jesus with all of my sin, all of my wickedness, all of my rebellion. I don't try to downplay it, hide it. And I say, I trust what you did on the cross. To be enough to forgive my sin. I believe that you rose again and that you're exalted at the Father's right hand. And I bow before you in complete faith. Have you done that? Are you actively trusting in Jesus and him alone? Some of you might be like me where you're like, I don't know the exact day and hour when that happened. I just know this. I once was blind, but now I see and I'm continuing to trust Jesus and rely on him. Some of you can point to a very dramatic conversion where it was like the light suddenly switched on. It was like I was living this horrible life and Jesus saved me. It's never been the same. Some of you came to faith when you were young. Some of you have come to faith when you were adults. It's not so much a matter of the the when and the exact time, but the that. Did it happen? Have you been born again? But notice what happens on. We go on with thinking about how we have gospel relationships. Verse 41 says, those who gladly received the word were baptized. Like everyone who received this message signified it by being baptized. What what does baptism do? Now, some people will say on the basis of Acts 2.38, you have to repent and be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, That's kind of wrong thinking. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see the the question is raised to to Paul, what shall I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Other places in Acts, it will be this. Repent, turn away from your sin, and you'll be saved. Repentance and faith go together like this. Where one is mentioned, the other is presumed. And where we see baptism fitting in in the book of Acts is baptism always comes after Someone receiving the gospel and having their sins forgiven. In fact, if you want a really good illustration of this, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is calling out the division that's going on in the church of Corinth. And they're all getting divided about, well, Paul baptized me and Peter baptized me. And, Peter, and Paul says, you know, I'm really glad that I only baptized a handful of you guys. Jesus did not send me to baptize but to preach the cross. And then he says it's the preaching of the cross that saves. A very, very clear declaration that it's not baptism that saves us. It's the preaching of the cross We receive that by faith, and then we demonstrate it by baptism. Baptism is this demonstration, is a picture of the gospel. Now, what would a baptism have meant to Peter's audience? They would have understood baptism as a purification ritual. In the Old Testament, if you became ritually impure, you had to wash with water, and then you would be sort of ritually clean, able to come to the temple again. In the time leading up to the New Testament, as the Jews would try to make proselytes of Gentiles. You come in, you say you're some guy from Greece, and you're like, man, I really believe in the God of Israel. I want to become a convert to Judaism. One of the things they would do is have them go through a ritual bath called a mikvah. You would go down one side in the water and come out the other, washing off sort of the, the unclean, unholy dirt from Italy or from you know, the non-holy land to say, I'm now pure and I have been cleansed. In fact, we know from archaeology there were a bunch of these mikvats around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for that very purpose. So some people say there's no way 3,000 people got saved and baptized by immersion. Surely they just sprinkled a little bit of water. There there was plenty of water around in Jerusalem, the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Siloam, and these ritual baths that would have happened. Here's the point. They would have understood baptism to be 
a, a purification ritual. They would have understood it to be a conversion rite to say, this is declaring publicly through a ritual involving water that I'm unclean and I'm sinful and that I'm now beginning a new life. Romans chapter 6 tells us that baptism pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Baptism always comes after and not before the reception of the gospel. And it pictures the gospel. It declares to everyone, I have identified with Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. If you will, it is an outward sign of an inward reality that my, because my heart has been cleansed from sin, I'm going to sort of declare that by reenacting that, by having my, water, my body washed by water. I have died to the old life, so I'm going to picture that by going down under the water. And I've been raised to walk in newness of life, pictured by coming up out of the water. There's a powerful picture in baptism. Now, here's the point I want to make. Everyone who received the gospel followed in, followed in the waters of baptism. And all those who followed in the waters of baptism had received the gospel. Like, they're completely overlapping categories. That's why we can have repent and be baptized, because the New Testament did not know such a thing as an unbaptized Christian or a non-Christian who was actually baptized. They were overlapping categories. So these now-baptized believers are added to the church. Verse 41 says, Those who received the word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them 3,000 souls. Now, I know that unto them is in italics, but it is very much implied by the Greek word, is that there is a group of 120 believers in Jesus who have been meeting in the upper room as the Jerusalem church, Now the Holy Ghost has come upon them, the Holy Spirit has filled them, and all these people are converted and now added to that number. There is a body to which they are added. So they receive the word, they're baptized, and then they are brought into membership, if you will, recognized part of the new covenant community. Now I'm not great at math, but before Pentecost, there were 120 disciples meeting in the upper room. After Pentecost, there's around 3,000. That's a 26-fold increase in one Day. You know what all they did? Preach the gospel. That's it, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And on a single day, 3,000 people were saved and baptized and brought into the church. In fact, more people were saved and converted in one day than were converted in one in the entirety of the three years of Jesus' ministry. Just throwing that out there, lest we fall into the very American mindset of saying success equals big numbers and big crowds. You cannot get any more faithful than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when he ascended to heaven, there's 120 people meeting in a room in Jerusalem. He had told the apostles, greater works than these shall you do, because I go to my Father. And here we begin to see it happening. The Spirit empowering the disciples, the church is exploding in growth. Now what is the entrance requirement of being part of the church? Receiving the word, being baptized. You know what's not there? Ethnicity. It doesn't say you have to be Jewish in order to be part of this new covenant community. It doesn't say you have to be from the certain economic group to be part of this. Because the entrance requirement is faith in Jesus declared through baptism. That means the church is going to be unlike any other institution on the planet. Most religions in the world are sort of tied to an ethnic culture. Especially Judaism at this time, you had to be Jewish to sort of be part of the people of Israel. When you think of Hinduism, you think of a particular part of the world. You think of Islam, you think of a particular culture. Christianity is not like that. Go with me over to the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26. 
Galatians 3, verse 26. When we, when we recognize the entrance requirement of the body of Christ as faith in Jesus, this means that the church will be unlike anything else in the world. For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you become a child of God, not because your mommy or your daddy was a, a Christian or because you grew up in a quote-unquote Christian nation, whatever that means. Verse 27, for as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Remember, it's the sign that points to the reality. Baptism is it's not baptism itself, but what baptism represents that brings you into Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Participation in the body of Christ has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with your gender. It has nothing to do with your economic status. It has nothing to do with your political standing. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross and faith in his name. Which means the church of Jesus Christ should be a multi-ethnic, multi-generational gathering of individuals. It should not be a, well, we're a middle-class church or we're an inner-city church or we're a white church or we're a black church. No, there's just the church of Jesus Christ. And diversity should be something that marks it, and unity in diversity, that's something you're never going to get from any institution of human origin. Because what unites us here is nothing that is, is nothing human but something divine. So genuine fellowship most foundationally is marked by gospel relationships. Fellowship's not simply a synonym for food. No, it talks about a relationship built around something transcendent. Our unity as a body of believers is not based on shared interests. It's not based on shared hobbies. It's not based on similar demographics or even politics. You might look around the room and find there's people that you have nothing in common. You have nothing in common with them except Jesus Christ, and that is more than enough. In fact, we could have great differences with other people in this room, but if we have Jesus in common and if we have repented of our sins and believed in him, we can experience the deepest fellowship imaginable. I've shared this before, but being in in Papua New Guinea, you go into a church of people who don't speak your language. Your cultures are, are so different. Like we don't even, our cultures are unintelligible to each other. And yet I have more in common with a believer in Jesus in Papua New Guinea than I do with a cultural Christian in Mobile, Alabama, who's not been savingly, has not savingly exercised faith in Jesus. Second mark of genuine fellowship, it's marked by committed relationships. We live in a day where folks really want community. Like, I'm looking for a church where I can really belong and have community, but I'm going to show up once every six weeks, or I'm going to jump from church to church to church to church. I don't want commitment. I don't want to be tied down. We live in sort of a commitment-phobic society, right, where people don't like commitment. That's a scary thing. But look at verse 42. Listen to the commitment here in verse 42, back in Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly. We get the word in, uh, in verse 46 as well, same Greek word. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Here, this word here, I'm just going to read you the definition from, from BDAG. It says, to stick by or be close at hand, attach oneself to, wait on, be faithful to someone with an emphasis on continuity, to persist in something, to hold fast to, continue and persevere in something. We're talking about deep commitment. Deep commitment. A word expressing deep commitment, public devotion. You might even use the word covenant. 
what they're living out is a, is a covenant relationship. We read last week during our communion service, our church covenant. Maybe that seems sort of odd to you that we would have a, a covenant expressing like what we're going to do. It's biblical, that idea that we would express publicly our commitments and our love to one another. In our isolated, fragmented world where people are hankering for community, it's interesting that one of the reasons we don't find it is our aversion to commitment. Basically, you can say, I can keep my options open or I can make commitment. Here's the reality. Community and deep relationships only are developed over time. You can either be a person of commitment or a person who likes to have all of your choices open. Commitment is the one that is the path that leads to deep community and fellowship with other people. So notice what they're committed to. Notice the objects of this commitment in verse 42. They continued steadfastly first in the apostles' doctrine. Now, we're not talking about like a doctrinal statement where they just sort of agreed to it, but this is the act of ongoing teaching. The apostles are standing up in the temple courts, and they're teaching the gospel, and they're explaining how the Old Testament is fulfilled. They're declaring the word like we talked about last week. They're doing that on an ongoing basis. And you can imagine the Christians gathering in Solomon's colonnade every day to listen to Peter and the different apostles sort of take turns teaching. And as people come by, like, hey, come, you've got to listen to this. And so it's both edifying and evangelistic at the same time. And they're continuing in that. They're actively coming and listening to that. Now you say, now, I could do that online. I could go find the Cloverleaf Baptist Church podcast, which we actually have a podcast. And so I'm just going to listen to the sermon on Wednesday mornings in my car. Why do I need to go to church? Because God in his wisdom has set up the church in such a way that we learn truth together. There's something about learning it together that helps us apply it to our lives Add to this the reality that the gospel is not just an individualistic message about how I make it to heaven, though that's part of it. It's about how we live as the people of God in this world. So one of the things you ought to commit yourself to, if you're a member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church, you're committing to gathering to hear the word of God taught, hear the word of God preached. Come whenever the doors are open to say, I've got a hankering. These, These folks gathered every day. Now, we're not planning on doing that, but gathering on Sunday school and Sunday morning, and why not come back Sunday nights? Why not be part of a fellowship group and say, I'm going to get everything I can that's being taught from the Word of God? The declaration and the explanation of God's truth is essential to the formation of faithful disciples. You will not grow as a Christian without the Word of God. You will not grow as a Christian without the Word of God being taught and declared and applied. Biblical teaching is as necessary to the health of the church as food is to the health of the body. And you say, well, I have the Bible and the Holy Spirit. I don't need teachers. That's a very unbiblical attitude. God in his wisdom gave teachers and pastors to the church for the perfecting of the saints. When you say, I don't need anyone to teach me the Bible, you're saying God goofed up when he gave pastors and teachers to the church because I'm smarter than that. That's a very arrogant attitude to have. God's given us teachers. I have people that I learned from, right? We should all have people that we learn from, and as a church, gathering to learn and to hear the word. So there's this commitment. These committed relationships are involved in teaching. And we go on in verse 42. They're committed to fellowship. And in the Greek, it's literally to the fellowship. It's not just sort of this generic, oh, we enjoy fellowshipping together. But it's like this definite sense of here's the believers that I know that I'm committed to. There's There's a sense of these people are my people. This church is my church. That word fellowship is koinonia, kind of a word that has made its way into sort of popular Christian parlance. It's a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. 
It declares what we share together. I want to get something across to you because we live in a very individualistic age and our evangelical Christianity can often become very individualistic about my personal devotions and my private faith and my individual walk with Jesus, which has got to be there. I am not denying that that's part of the Christian life. But let me just emphasize the other side of that equation. Christianity is inherently relational because why our God is inherently relational. The God that we, we know, the God that we come into fellowship with, is not a unitary God. He's Trinity. God exists eternally as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It's not as if God was lonely and then said one day, you know what, I need to have a son. And so he brought Jesus into being. And then, mm, let's come up with the Holy Spirit. No, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From eternity past, you know, 50 trillion years ago, when there was nothing in the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, enjoying fellowship and perfect love and glory and satisfaction within the Godhead. And when you become a Christian, you enter into a relationship with the triune God. According to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, we have koinonia, fellowship with the Son. According to 2 Corinthians 13, 13, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. According to 1 John 1, 3, we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son. We enter into a relationship with a triune God. And not only with that, but with one another. When you become a Christian... You not only have God as your father, you now have Christians as your brothers. You come, become part of a family. So the idea that I can go be a Christian and just sort of worship God while I'm out, you know, dropping a line in the water out on, you know, down there at uh, Dauphin Island is, is contradictory to the, the, the whole tenor of Scripture. You become a sheep who's part of a flock. You become a brick who's part of a wall in the temple. You become a member who is part of a body. There's no sense that there are amputated members who are just living as a hand by themselves, but in vital connection to a body of believers. So fellowship means that we're going to be serious about living out the one another commands of Scripture. There's so many commands in the New Testament that assume we are part of a committed relationship to other Christians. So love one another. Well, who's the one another we're supposed to love? So everybody, okay, loving everyone in general is often an excuse to love no one in particular. The one another are the people that you've committed yourself to in in fellowship and in covenant. Hebrews 3.13 tells us that we should exhort one another while it is today, that anyone should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That assumes that we know each other well enough to be able to see, man, I think brother so-and-so is is beginning to be hardened by sin. Uh, Those are hard things to see unless you actually know each other and see each other on a regular basis. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says that we are supposed to provoke one another. Like, oh, that doesn't sound fun. I don't want to be provoked. To love and to good works. We're to have this relationship where we stir each other up, that after we are with each other, we're encouraging and prodding each other to follow harder after Jesus and to love him more and to serve him more. How? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The the idea there in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is we have a commitment and an obligation to stir each other up to follow after Christ, and one of the ways we do that is by gathering together. And in our gatherings that we're having meaningful conversations that make us leave this place, wanting to be more faithful to Jesus. That's going to mean intrusive conversations. That's going to mean saying, I'm going to take the mask off and be real with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That means me saying, I'm not going to just be secretive and evasive when someone asks me how I'm doing spiritually. 
fellowship. You say, we want fellowship and belonging. Okay, do you want people asking you how your prayer life is? I want fellowship and belonging. Are you willing to show up when the church gathers? I want fellowship and belonging in relationships. Are you willing to say, I'm going to invest in the spiritual well-being of other people? It means asking how people's devotions are doing. Not in a, a hi, gotcha, let me bring the hammer down on you kind of a way, but a, I just want to be encouraged to know that you're doing well in your walk with Jesus. It means sharing the needs that are in your family. It means inviting accountability. It means encouraging each other. It means praying with and for each other. You see, we're living in an age of expressive individualism where everyone is like, I'm going to be me, and I'm going to live loud and proud for everybody to see it, and everybody needs to affirm it. That's the culture, and that's not just true in the transgender movement. That's true in the church as well. In our age of expressive individualism, of historical rootedness, where people think that history started five minutes ago, and of spiritual homelessness, the Church of Jesus Christ offers something profoundly countercultural. In that, it offers a place to belong that's not about you. It offers a place to belong that's not about me. It offers a place to belong that's not about your preferences or my preferences. It offers a place to belong that's about Jesus. And a place to belong that didn't start in 1965, but started thousands of years ago in the plan of God. So they're committed to the fellowship, to these kinds of relationships. Another, a, a third objects to which they were committed, verse 42, they continued steadfastly the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of the bread, literally in the original, the breaking of the bread. Commentators are split. Some will say, well, that could be simply referring to having a meal. Uh, we see down in verse 46, for example, they're breaking bread from house to house. Christians just having meals together, having fellowship dinners together. Other times that phrase, the breaking of bread, is technical language to refer to celebrating the Lord's Supper. Right, that's what we see in 1 Corinthians. You, he breaks the bread, we distribute it like we celebrated last week. I believe we're talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, the fact that I have that in the outline kind of tips my hand on what I think there. Partly, for, partly because there is the, the definite article, the breaking of the bread. We're talking about something very specific and identifiable in the minds of Luke's readers. Secondly, it's surrounded by words like prayer and fellowship and teaching, not just Christians getting together, but something that's more specific in our gatherings. In fact, we might even view these four items as the, the liturgy of the early church. What did they do when they gathered? Well, they had teaching. And what did they do? They had fellowship. What did they do when they gathered? They celebrated the Lord's Supper. And fourthly, what did they do? They prayed, like those four elements. Now, why is the Lord's Supper an important part of what we commit ourselves to? Why does it matter if we celebrate the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a God-given reminder of the gospel. We are so quick to forget that we are sinners. We're so quick to forget, forget the fact that our sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. We're quick to allow relationships to fester and disunity to occur. And the Lord's Supper is a focal point where we come back to say, I'm going to be reminded of the fact that I am forgiven by the blood of Christ and by the broken body of Jesus. And it's an opportunity to examine my heart to say, am I really a Christian? To examine my heart to say, is there anything between me and God? And is there anything between me and other brothers and sisters in Christ that I need to reconcile? Think how helpful that is to have a regular place where you're examining your heart and your relationships. Every week you go and you need that, that time. Early, the early church, as best I can tell, looking at the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, celebrated this every Lord's Day. Every Sunday when they gathered, they would have celebrated the Lord's Supper. Every Sunday when they gathered, they would have looked back to the Passover being fulfilled in Jesus. 
They would have looked forward to the day that we eat this anew with him in the kingdom. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is gloriously inconvenient. You know, we're in an age where we want everything to sort of be microwavable. But the Lord's Supper is one of those things that's not convenient. You can't, like, you can't do this online or have it delivered by FedEx to your house. By the way, you, there's no such thing as taking communion privately. That's not a thing in the Bible. It's always taken as a church. But it's inconvenient in a way that is good for our souls. It's something that's selflessly corporate. There's a reason why when we take communion, we eat at the same time to say it's not about just me, but it's about us as the body of Christ. And it's thoughtfully worshipful. You think about it, those are things that are glaringly absent from our world today that the Lord's Supper offers. Okay, the fourth thing they were committed to were prayers, literally the prayers. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer. There were set times when Jewish believers would go to the temple to pray, and it seems like they continued that practice in the early church. But I think we're speaking something more specific or more general than just they continued praying in the temple. But it's prayers, multiple prayers. Prayer is central in the Gospel of Luke and Volume 2, the book of Acts, to the ministry of Jesus and then the ministry of the apostles. Later on in Acts, there's a bit of a problem with growth comes some of these challenges. There's so many people added to the church that the sort of benevolence fund of the church is becoming unmanageable. They've got all of these widows that they're trying to care for, and it's threatening to bring division. And the apostles come along, they say, this is a really, really important issue, but it's not something that we can take, so they appoint deacons. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They say that as important as it is to keep the church together and to have unity in the church, and that's what the deacon's job is, what is even more important is for us to devote ourselves to the word, studying and preaching and declaring the word, and praying. Such an important Thing. Prayer is such an important thing that they literally created a new office within the church to guard the importance of prayer. Sometimes in Acts, we see prayer that's being performed by the, the apostles, other times by the church as a whole. Sometimes it's individual, sometimes it's corporate, all kinds of prayers. And the fact that this is plural, uh, back in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to prayers, the prayers, plural, not just prayer in a general way, leads me to believe they're praying prayers like we did this morning, a prayer of adoration. You notice the first prayer of the service was not just a general, God, would you bless our service, but specifically focused on worshiping and adoring God. We had a prayer of confession that's focused on confessing our sins to God. We had a pastoral prayer where we're bringing our needs before God. When we celebrate communion, we have prayers of thanksgiving. Because we see all these types of prayers modeled in Scripture, we think that it's wise for us when we gather to have multiple kinds of prayers so that we're not just sort of falling into a rut, but we're going, having times of worship and having times of confession and times of thanksgiving and even times of lament in the life of the church. I think all of those things were going on in the early church. Now, what was the result of all of this? Look at verse 43. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Interesting, the signs and wonders are being done by the apostles, not by everybody in the church. There's some today who have the idea that every Christian or Christians in general should have the ability to do signs and wonders. It's clear that, that miracles in the book of Acts are done by the apostles and then by two other individuals, Stephen and Philip. Outside of that, we don't see every Christian just running around healing everybody. But notice the point, fear came upon every soul. This is not everyone saying, oh man, we're really afraid. It's reverence, a palpable sense of the presence of God. 
Within the church, people were aware that God is present, dwelling in the midst of his people. His, his, his presence is being displayed in these miracles, but his presence is being displayed in our gatherings. Outside of the community, people would look in and say, God is present in, the, in that gathering of Jewish people meeting on, in Solomon's colonnade on Temple Mount. There was a sense that God was there. The result of this com- these committed relationships was a sense of God's presence. So some people want to say, you know, the Spirit of God is going to work. We don't want to hamper that with commitments and structures. Here we actually see the opposite. When they were committed to teaching and to fellowship and the Lord's Supper and to prayer, the result was this boundless expression and, and sense of God's presence. God is in your midst. So question, are you willing to have committed relationships with a church family? The Bible suggests that you should. That's why, by the way, we're doing a members class tonight. If you are not a member of a church, I would urge you, come out to our members class. Find out what it's about. If you're a member of another church, you should consider transferring your membership to where you're active. Membership is not having your name on a piece of paper, but it's being an active, committed part of a church family. All right, we need to move on here. Genuine fellowship number three is marked by sacrificial relationships. Verses 44 and 45 says, the, All who believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all as every man had need. Some people read this and are like, mm, look, they were doing, they're, they're practicing communism. Uh, so some Anabaptists after the Reformation said, we, you know, no Christian should own everything. It should be held in common. Uh, that was one of the practices of the Anabaptists, was, was sort of a form of communal living where everything was shared. Uh, I think that's a misreading of this text. Rather, what we are seeing is generosity. It's not saying that they sold everything they owned out of a principle to say that private property is evil. Rather, there were tremendous needs in the body. All of these people had come from all over the world. Remember back in Acts 2? All have converged on Jerusalem for Pentecost. They're planning to stay for you know, a week for the festival. There's this moving of the Spirit, they get saved, so now they're staying. They don't have houses to live in. They, they have tremendous physical and financial needs because of just their dislocation. So what do they do to, to meet that need? That The people in the church who have resources are like, let's liquidate those so that we can meet these needs. They're selling properties and possessions to meet real needs within the church. Here's another thing to note. This is not being required. It's not the apostles who are saying, if you're really a Christian, you sell everything and live a life of poverty. Uh, the fact that in verse 46 they're meeting in homes means they didn't sell literally everything they owned. Uh, later on when Ananias and Sapphira try to, 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 to pretend to have sold a large amount and give it all to, to God, Peter makes it very clear, like, you didn't have to do this. Their sin was not holding back part of their proceeds. Their sin was trying to deceive God's people and God's spirit. So we're not talking about communism, but we are talking about pretty radical generosity. That being said... You know, by saying, okay, we're not talking about requiring everyone to take a vow of poverty and give everything to the church, is not getting, getting us off the hook from the kind of sacrificial generosity that is required of Christians. We live in the wealthiest nation in human history. We are living at the wealthiest time in human history. Real income since the 70s have more than doubled. And yet I wonder, is our generosity keeping pace with our affluence and with our wealth? 
Or do we become, has our standard of living sort of outpaced our increase in income to a degree that we're like, I don't have money to, to give and to be generous because I've got to make payments on the boat and on the bigger house that I bought that I didn't really need and the new car that really wasn't necessary and the cable subscription and then all of my add-ons that I have onto my, you know, my Prime account and I've got all of these different things that I'm doing and so I don't really have any money left to give. Could it be that our issue is not a lack of income but a lack of generosity? Could it be that our failure to budget is leading to a failure to be generous? It's not just generosity, by the way, with money. It's also generosity with time. Verse 44 says they were together. Um, They're gathering every day. not saying that we have to do that, but there's sacrificial relationships, not just with the money to meet needs within the body, but sacrificial generosity with time. People are very inefficient. Just think about this. Getting to know, remember when you got to know your spouse? It wasn't like, okay, we got five minutes, let's get to know each other. It took months and questions and long conversations. It's not an efficient, like, you know, assembly line kind of thing. Relationships are time-consuming, and we are all busy with a lot of things that are good things and necessary things. But busyness is not an excuse for ignoring biblical commands. The Bible commands us to be involved in one another's lives. We're called to love one another. We're commanded to serve one another. We're commanded to teach one another. We're commanded to admonish one another, to sing to one another, to forgive one another, to put up with one another, to pray for one another, all of which takes a lot of time. If we're going to fellowship and enjoy community, we're going to have to be sacrificial with our time and, yes, with our money in meeting the needs within the body of Christ. Okay, fourth, we see that genuine fellowship is marked by joyful relationships. Notice how we have the repetition of the word relationships. We're talking about real relationships, but they're joyful. Verses 46 and 47, they're continuing daily with one accord in the temple. So this one-hearted unity, that's one of the things that comes up again and again in the book of Acts. They're gathering every day. Like, you can sense, this is not a, we've got to go to church again. But this is, a, guys, we get to gather with the saints. This is awesome. We're living in the age of fulfillment and the Spirit has come and miracles are being performed and Jesus is the Messiah that we've long been waiting for. Let's gather together to celebrate this. This is too good to keep to ourselves. They're doing it with one heart. So they're gathering every day in the temple and then on the other side of the coin and breaking bread from house to house. So there are formal gatherings. Think of the temple gatherings as like our big church services. The whole church comes together. By the way, that's what churches do. Churches assemble. Uh, you, know, you get sometimes you buy something, you, you go down to, 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 to buy a piece of furniture, and it says, assembly required. The church is the same way. Assembly is required. For a church to be a church, a church has to gather. That's literally what the word means, a gathering or an assembly. A non-assembling assembly is an oxymoron, is a contradiction in terms. Like, online church isn't a thing. You can do online sermons, online church is not a thing. Like, we've got to actually gather to be a church. So they're gathering in the temple, that's the whole church, And then informally, in small groups, breaking bread from house to house, getting together. Like these believers so enjoyed spending time with each other. Like it's not enough just to see each other in the temple courts with the other 3,000 people who are part of this church. Let's get together and get to know each other. Let's share meals together. Now, the breaking of bread here in verse 46 doesn't have the article on it. It's just eating and sharing a meal. So verse 42, celebrating communion as a church. Verse 46, sharing meals together as a church. An aspect of fellowship is that one-anothering, horizontal, conversational kind of relationship. What we have going on right now is a one-way conversation, a monologue. 
Fellowship is about dialogue, where we're going back and forth and having discussion and conversation. And it's that reality that's led us to say, Wednesday nights, let's turn those into small groups where we can have that kind of one another in conversation the Bible commands us to, to, to have. If the Bible's commanding us to do something as a church, it really makes sense for us to put it on the calendar. It really makes sense for us to make it something that we're going to say, this is what we're doing as a church. I think we've got good basis for it in verse 46. You could not get the entire church in one house. That's why it's a house-to-house, multiple houses where people are gathering to be with each other. But in an even more informal kind of way. You want to just have each other over. Okay, this is a really simple, you want a really simple application from this week's sermon. If we're going to have fellowship, invite somebody over for lunch today or come over for dinner on Tuesday night. Let's get to know each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I love the end of this verse. They're eating their bread or eating their meat. That's not necessarily talking about steak, but just their food. They're eating their food with gladness and singleness of heart. I love that. They're sharing meals with each other with glad and the idea of singleness, generous hearts. They're not thinking, oh, man, we've got to have people over today. Let's get the spam out of the cupboard. Let's get last year's hurricane food. They're like, no, we're going to do this generously. We're going to be generous in sharing meals with each other and making sure that each other have good things to eat. But what's giving them gladness? Their joy was not about what was on the plate. Their joy was about the God who was in their midst. The joy was not about what was on the table, but was who was around the table. Recalls the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 16. It says, You're going to gather for your festivals and you're going to rejoice before the Lord your God. This is pretty sweet. In the Old Testament, God literally commands his people to get together, eat lots of food, and party in a holy kind of partying sort of way. We're seeing this in the New Testament. Jim read for us Nehemiah chapter 8. They're, what are they sending? Portions. They're like, Eat the fat, get the best cuts of meat, and enjoy yourselves because God is so good. What a good thing. What a, what a wholesome, beautiful thing to say. Our God is so good. We get together and we celebrate. You know, the Christian life and living life should not just be about the grind. We have to say, I'm going to call out the idolatry of my busyness, the idolatry of my constant hurry, and I'm going to carve out time where I'm just going to enjoy what God has given to me. Your worth And your value in life is not found in you just constantly earning more money and doing more things. What's the point? It is worshipful before God when we do a job well to his glory. And it is worshipful to God when we take the fruit of what we have earned and we just enjoy it with other people. We get that from Ecclesiastes. God wants us to enjoy. The church should be a joyful community, verse 47, praising God. They're gathering together. They're singing the psalms, which are, man, the psalms are really full of joy and praising God. It would almost be ludicrous for us to not sing when we get together. It would almost be like, all right, if we, if we had a church service and we just got up here and started teaching, hopefully someone would say, guys, we really need to sing because this is so good what God has done for us. We sing because our hearts are full. So how did they deepen this joy-filled fellowship? They didn't deepen fellowship by focusing on fellowship. They deepened their fellowship by focusing on God. And as we all center our hearts on who God is, our fellowship will explode. Now, we come down to the end of verse 47, and they were having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the church daily, the ones being saved. Genuine fellowship is marked by, and perhaps even a better word, results in evangelistic relationships. Sometimes we think if we focus on one another and we won't be focused on the world around us, 
But I don't think it's a mistake that verse 47 comes after 41 to 46. As the church was simply being the church, people were being saved and were being attracted to say, we want to be part of what is going on. They had favor with the people. Um, It's not actually a bad thing to do good things for the community and have the community say, this church is a really valuable institution in our community. It's not necessarily a sign of holiness to have everybody hate you. You can be hated for the right reasons, but you can also be hated because you're a real pain in the neck. They have favor from the people. David Peterson makes the argument the phrase could also be translated they're having favor toward the people. Um, It very much could be rendered that way. He says this, Their gracious attitude was a significant factor in the turning of many more to Jesus Christ as Lord and Christ. He put it this way, We will not touch a world that we fear, and we will not reach a world we despise. If our attitudes toward the culture and the world around us, we're afraid of them or we despise them, we will never reach them and they will never want to gather with God's people to hear the word. This witness came from their worship. They're praising God and it results in them having influence with the community. Worship leads to witness. Fellowship leads to evangelism. And the result is the Lord adding daily to the church such as should be saved. I love this statement because it tells us that God does the saving. God's got people that he is saving, and he's going to save them infallibly and definitely. But he doesn't do it in a vacuum. He does it through his people being his people. He does it through the church being the church. Notice that word in verse 47, that word daily. We saw that word just a couple of verses, just a verse earlier. They're in the temple every day, preaching and heralding and celebrating. And guess what's happening? Every day people are being saved. The sense that I get is, yes, God has determined he's going to save these people, but guess how he's doing it? His church being faithful and witnessing. It's pretty awesome. One final note here. The Lord added the church daily such as should be saved. Everyone who he was saving was added to the church. And everyone who was added to the church were people he had saved. This is a saved, baptized membership. This is not a church where, well, you kind of get in because mom and dad were also Christians, so you're going to be a member because they were. You come in through the doorway of repentance and faith. The fact that verse 47 comes after verse 46 tells me that the way that God reaches the world is through a healthy church. When our relationships are right with each other, When we're enjoying this gospel-centered fellowship, it is only natural that that will overflow into a magnetic, electric witness before the community. And yes, God gets all the glory because he's the one who does the saving. But he does it through a healthy church. So what do we do in application from this? Let me give you some very simple points of application in no no particular order. This is not like from most important to least important. Just... So we take away, take, get some takeaways from this. Number one, commit to faithfully attending your church. We have this awesome fellowship that we want to be cultivating and enjoying. Show up. It's a really simple way to enjoy it and to cultivate it. Second, be part of a fellowship group. Uh, there's plenty of ways to fellowship that don't involve our fellowship groups. I totally get it. But it's a really good way to have... We're getting together for the purpose of hanging out as Christians and having some input into one another's lives and to discuss the word. Number three, if you're not a member, consider joining our church because of these relationships are committed, uh, commitment-based relationships. 
Fourth, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you ought to declare your faith through the waters of baptism. If you'd like to be baptized, come talk to me. We'll set up a time to have, have a conversation, hear your testimony. Fifth, practice hospitality. You've got a home, open it up. Have people over. Throw some steaks on the grill. Throw some burgers out there. Invite people from this church. You're like, I don't know them. I'm going to have them over. And finally, maybe you're here listening to this today, and you're thinking, that just sounds awesome. I want to belong to something like that. I want to be part of a community like that, where there's caring and sacrifice and joy. And How do you get in? Repent and believe in Jesus. What's keeping you out is sin, not because we have it all together, but it's ultimately sin is separating you from God. So turn to Christ today and enter into into fellowship with him and with his people. Father, we come to you through your son. Thank you for your word. May we apply it to our hearts. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.